Last summer, several articles with the same theme appeared online in newspapers and journals and popped up on social media in many, many ways. There was a shift in the wording of the title, but it always expressed the very same meaning. The title alone told the problem, the principle, and the punchline of what was being addressed. It went like this. It's really quite simple. Your kids don't want your parents' stuff. Did you get it? Your kids don't want your parents' stuff. You don't want it, and neither do they. The problem is that as boomers and their parents downsize, declutter, and empty their nest, many are feeling the painful fact that their offspring really, really don't want the king-size dark wood bedroom set. <laughs> they don't want the box of handmade Christmas ornaments, the 12 place settings of China, the nostalgic memorabilia from family visits to the national parks, and they really don't want that silver tea cest. They mean it. They don't want it. Don't believe me? Walk through our local antique consignment and thrift stores. They are overflowing with brown wood furniture, porcelain and china pieces, mismatched silver, and very marginal art. <laughs> Decades of acquiring and holding on to possessions has created a crisis for some, but an opportunity for others. The crisis comes when we have to ask ourselves, so if my kids don't want my treasures, what do I do with it? The opportunity comes for those who've seen what is happening and have jumped in to create the storage unit industry that this year alone, this year alone, will see revenue of $3.7 billion while anticipating an annual increase of 8% for the next 10 years. The principle involved in all of this is that we have been people who have spent an inordinate amount of time and effort and resources acquiring things. Whether we like it or not, we have to recognize that our identity, influence, our prestige and recognition are more tightly connected to our possessions than we are prepared to admit. The question has become, do I have things or do those things have me? If you come to our home, it functions well for us. There's not too much extra placed around, but please, please don't open that closet. <laughs> and you are absolutely forbidden from ever going down into our basement. You can't go there. We have such good intentions for how we want to live, don't we? We want to know God. We want to do good work. We want to be known for good character and relationships. We so want to be good parents. But we too easily drift into another mode. Advertisers, along with our own easily swayed hearts, have created the myth of more. You surely know it. One day in our future, but not today, more will be enough down the road. When we believe the myth, we keep hoping that the next, you fill in the blank, the next thing will be the source of our soul's satisfaction and the feeling of not needing anything more. 
And for a few minutes, or even perhaps a few days, we do experience that sense of satisfaction, but it soon wears off. And the punchline is that the feeling is never permanent, as the feeling of wanting more always, always returns. You see, our real problem isn't that we just want more. Rather, it's that we are not just physical beings. We are spiritual ones. And our deepest hunger is a spiritual one. We hunger for meaning. We hunger for love. We hunger for understanding. We hunger for redemption. And the punchline is that what we need, what our hearts really need, nobody sells. And when we find ourselves in those moments that are unsatisfying, which we regularly and often do, God in his goodness and grace calls us back, or maybe even to the first time, to our first priority and our first love. This is the second week of our three-part series where we are thinking about the ways that we are looking for love in all the wrong places. Last week, we looked at our narcissistic self-love that keeps us from looking towards our one true love. Our theme song last week was, I did it my way. This week, the song that naturally follows is, You Can't Take It With You, where we are looking at how our never-ending, and it never ends, need to accumulate alongside our misplaced priorities blocks us from what we were truly created for, to live freely in our life-giving, kingdom-focused relationship with God. In the scripture that was read this morning, we were reminded that such misplaced priorities is really nothing new. It's a passage that has been preached here before, and many of you are familiar with it. So let's look at the passage. But before we go into I want to give you a little bit of the context before that we didn't read. Earlier in that chapter, we find that thousands... Thousands of people have been coming together to hear Jesus teach. Chaos has really erupted, and they are clamoring over each other. And Jesus, as he often does, he turns to those, his friends around him, his disciples, and he speaks to them. And he's saying difficult but important words, but also ones that hold much promise, where he says, I want you to know that no matter what happens, the Holy Spirit will be present with you. And it's in that context that a man in the crowd pushes forward to ask Jesus to do something specific for him. This is not unusual. I think it's one of the amazing things about Jesus that people were comfortable and eager enough to come to him to ask him for something specifically for themselves. But this man, he's not asking for healing. He's not asking for a spiritual understanding. He's asking Jesus to settle a family quarrel about dividing an inheritance. Jesus' response is a sharp one. It cut right in. Look at verse 14, if you have your Bible open in front of you. He says, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus had come for a very specific task, and this wasn't it. Then Jesus, as he often does, he turns his attention to the larger crowd around him, the ones who were surely listening in to what he had to say. And he says these words. He says, take care, take care, and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
I wonder if you are curious like I am as to what the man did in that moment. What was his reaction? Did he recognize that he was actually being called out in that moment and maybe dive back into the crowd to try to disappear? Or did he maybe stand even taller and look around him and internally point his finger at other people? Was he even aware of the deeply ingrained greed in his own life as easily as he could see it in others, just as you and I have surely done? I think not. Some of you are thinking, I really haven't acquired much. My closets really aren't that jammed. So these words really aren't for me. But they are. They are. Because greed, because covetousness works two ways. Either our hands are tightly gripping what we have so that we're holding on to it, or they're open grasping and reaching for what we do not have. The amount of our belongings, the amount in your retirement, the amount in your financial portfolio, that does not at all determine your greediness. Our heart towards those things does. Then we find Jesus using his most effective teaching tool. He begins to tell a parable. Look with me, if you will, at verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself... What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus is talking about a man who has been blessed with abundance, and he is trying to decide what to do with all of it. But there was a problem in his thinking. Was the problem that he was successful? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Was the problem that the abundant crop had made him rich? No, that's not it either. No, Jesus is not condemning success or the possession of riches. The man's problem is that he was thinking about those things in the wrong way. He was banking in the wrong place. He was relying on the wrong investment in the wrong way. The man had a fatal presupposition that he was the beginning and end of the story. He never saw beyond himself, and he never looked into the world around him. His inward, insular focus caused him to miss any outward opportunity of sharing that of which he really had no need. He had more than enough. How do we know that? Look again at the verses. Notice the personal pronouns that are used. I will do. I will tear down. My barns. I will store. I will say to my soul. And so on. Did you notice that he's really pretty much talking to himself? Eleven times the first person person pronouns are used because it was all about him. The man was completely limited by the now of his abundance. He says to himself, I have tucked it safely away, so right now what I do intend to do is just to kick back and relax. But did you notice that what the man is giving so much energy and effort to store? It's crops. Things that do not have a long shelf life. 
Things that eventually will begin to rot sooner than you think. Things that do not last. His year of abundance drives the building of a bigger barn as if a bigger barn will then guarantee future abundance. But what happens the next year when there's a drought? What happens when there's a disease that cuts down that crop? What happens when there is little or nothing to store in that bigger barn? We know that an unused barn eventually falls apart and becomes unusable. An old unused barn may make a scenic photograph on the landscape, but it's not worth much more than that. So it bears asking, does God care about tangible things? Yes, he does. But he cares about them for his purpose and his intentions and not ours. If you are a Christ follower, you know that you do not have anything that does not come from the gracious, abundantly generous hand of God. That's not just a passing thought. That's not a simple line of praise. That's a true fact. We assume that what we have now, we will always have, or we will have more of it, don't we? And it's not just that we have it. It's that we allow our, our abundance to give us our identity our meaning, and our purpose. When we become consumed with accumulating and building barns, we are distracted from being a part of God's kingdom, which will not fade, which will not rot, but lasts for eternity. It keeps us from joining with God, being a part of God's kingdom, and bringing it forth here on earth. Jesus is saying, that's storing up only for the immediate now rather than preparing and planning for eternity, it's a big mistake. It's a costly one. Look at verse 20. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Fool is beyond being a mocking word. It is harsh. It cuts right into the man. It speaks of one who follows his own inclinations, who prefers all things that are trifling and temporary. It means that the fool has not stored the most important thing. When God calls someone a fool, he's saying that they have missed out completely on what he has offered and what he has required. This night, the moment when you die, you are face to face with God. What's he going to say to you? Congratulations. You showed great control over your investments and your abundance. You attempted to store them well for your earthly future. Oh, but there's one thing you missed. Try as you might. You just could not control the span of your life. Yes, yes, I know you intended to release your grip on what you had accumulated. I know you were beginning to think about turning your focus and intentions to outward to what I was doing. Yes, yes, you said you wanted to know more about how you could invest in my kingdom. But you didn't. 
And so here we are. My beloved child, the one that I gave the life of my son for, I now call you fool. And Jesus' final words to the crowd were these. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. These are pretty direct words. There's no mistaking at all what Jesus is saying. The problem was clear. The principle was clear. And now so is the punchline. The real issue for the listeners that day and for us is simple. What's on first? What's first on your priority list and mine? Jesus is saying to all who will listen that the point, the purpose of life is breathtakingly simple. Be rich towards God, giving God what he desires most of all. And what he desires most from you is you. And what he desires most from me is me. He wants our heart and our full devotion to be driving towards him. Matthew, could you put that slide up? C.S. Lewis expressed that, this punchline, this thought, these words well. Some of you are familiar with this quote. Lewis says, put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. And when your heart is his, and your first priority is devotion to him, then what we accumulate and what we do own and are responsible for, it is repurposed. All that we have is for his use, and we get to bring it and to invest our time, our talent, and our treasure in what will never, ever end, the kingdom of God. Mike and I are grateful for the strong, the very strong kingdom-focused churches that we have been able to serve through our marriage. At this point, the church we have served um, the longest has been Ward Presbyterian Church in Northfield, Michigan, right between the city of Detroit and Ann Arbor. I let you know that's in Michigan so that you know that we don't just have the Michigan influence on Pastor Nathan, but we were there for ten and a half years as well. Part of Mike's job as an associate pastor was to be the person on Sunday morning that people would come, if they were coming the first time and they had questions about the church, they would seek him out and he would introduce them to all the goings-on of the church. One Sunday, a couple came to him who were, in fact, visiting for the first time. They had attended worship and they experienced just the energy of the congregation. They heard what was going on in the life of the church and they had an important question for Mike. They wanted to know how could they invest in all of this. Let me tell you that when a pastor hears those words, we try not to get too excited. But we, let me assure you that we try to hold back on the plan that we instantly have for your life. But they meant literally what they said in the question. How could they invest and buy stock in this church? They said, we want to invest here because it is obvious that we, we will get a guaranteed return on our investment. And they were right. There is a guaranteed return. 
What God has invested in our heart and soul is beyond our comprehension. God does not just barely give us enough grace to get us across the threshold into heaven. No, not at all. Rather, he is lavish with grace that he gives us. He pours it out. He is the prodigal God, the one true God who is abundant and over the top in his grace towards us. You and I, we cannot help but find ourselves living a way of life where our cup runneth over. Our investment in the kingdom of God, living with first things first, does indeed have a guaranteed return. And we can say that because we know, we know, just as the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also in him graciously give us all things? Friends, may we be those who respond to his richness with hands open to receive and ready to release so that his kingdom may come, his will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Thanks be to God.